This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. My guest today is one of the UK's most celebrated literary biographers. She published her first book, The Life and Death of Mary Wollstonecraft, in 1974 and has since written best-selling biographies of writers including Jane Austen, Charles Dickens, Thomas Hardy and Samuel Pepys. Her latest book is The Young H.G. Wells, Changing the World. Claire Tomlin, thanks for joining me. Well, I'm very pleased to be with you. So what, I mean, spurs you to take on a biography in general, and I guess this one in particular, is it your, your sort of awareness that there's access to unexploited sources or a feeling from reading sort of existing books that there's a new argument to make, that something is, is, has not been said yet? Well, no, it's because it's somebody I've always been interested in whose work I've been interested in, and I just thought I wanted to spend time with. I read your memoir recently, um, and you mentioned there that, that Wells' realist novels gave your French father a sort of a vision of English life, a sort of perhaps what, what to expect. Was, so was your first encounter with him those books, which I think are probably less well known to a lot of readers now, rather than the, the science fiction? No, it was, it was the science fiction. And then you came to the others later, because you, you, you make a very strong argument for some of those novels, particularly Tono Bungay. Tono Bungay is really, should be read much, much more. It's a really marvellous novel, extraordinary novel. Do you think that Wells would have been sort of disappointed then that his reputation, his sort of broader reputation, rests so much on those, those early science fiction novels? And that some of those novels, those other novels like Tony Bungay that he was very proud of are a sort of relatively niche concern. Well, he might be, but he was he was a pretty practical person. So I think he should be pretty pleased. And I got the impression, I mean, you, you say this in the book, you seem to find him sort of excellent company for all his flaws. And, and when he died in 1946, George Bernard Shaw said that he was so amiable that though he raged against all of us, none of us resented it. And, and that seems to be a sort of slightly paradoxical thing about him, that in, in many ways he was maddening and that people sort of struggled to hold it against him. What did you find so compelling about him? Well, I was always pleased to meet him. And I think that's something, something very true, that there was something attractive about him. People really liked meeting him. They liked talking to him. He fought for himself, didn't he? He was extraordinary. I mean, he had so many things to fight for to get an education, to deal with his ill health. He had battle after battle. And I admire that hugely, that he, he battled on. Because reading about his childhood, I mean, did you, where do you think his confidence and ambition came from? Was it just a sense that he was, you know, he was just going to have to fight if he was going to get anywhere? Yes, I think he got a, a lot of help from his father who brought him books. I, of course, he was uh, much loved by his mother, but I think the father was was a very important figure, and and getting him reading. And you know, he wrote his own first novel when he was a child. I mean, he when he wrote the novel, he even wrote the sort of the reviews, the, the, the sort of bits, the supporting bits to a novel. He didn't just write a story; he saw it as a published uh, effort. Oh yes, yes, he did his own blurbs. Yeah, that's right. 
And I've read parts of his autobiography, which is, 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 uh, is very long, hugely entertaining. When you compared it with other sources, how does it hold up? How reliable is his own account of his life? I think it's pretty reliable. I think it's rather remarkably reliable. I think he's uh, trustworthy. It's wonderful to, to have him taking you by the hand and describing things. You could say you don't really need to write a biography because he's done <laughs> and he and he is quite hard of himself, and I think he reveals things in that that you might uh, that other people might not uh, want to reveal about themselves. He didn't seem to sort of hold that much back. That's right. That's right. Yes, he was very straightforward in that way. And I mean, over time, his sort of reputation is, you know, has recovered. The great work is remembered, and the not so great work is forgotten. Do you think his reputation would have been very different? earlier had he not lived so long that that in a sense the more books that he wrote and the more that he sort of um tried to be this sort of big figure the more that people like Orwell felt that you know it all gone wrong well I think or just didn't admire the later stuff but the, the political work he did was was pretty important he was working for very very good political causes it's something different he went he went in a different direction, but a valuable one too. You cover in detail his his relationship with the Fabian Society, which was uh, incredibly tempestuous. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's obviously an area that really, really fascinates you. He had all these sort of political goals he wanted to achieve, but do you think you're sort of an, on some level quite incapable of, of working, working with others and accepting that their ideas uh, might be as good as his? Well, yes. I mean, going to the Fabian Society, it's, it's, it's marvellous because here was the Fabian Society, very good people, and they, what, they were thrilled to have the young Wells. They thought he was Richard Webb, uh, Sidney Webb. They thought it was marvellous to have him there. And then they were dismayed by the fact that he wanted to reorganise it. He told them they had to spend a lot of money, they had to do advertising. You know, they were very sort of puritanical, the Fabian Society. Wells wanted to sort of make them... Uh, commercial uh, and of course he also appealed very much to the young Fabians the children of the very puritanical older Fabians and then there was trouble with that because the young Fabians thought Wells was marvellous. One of the the things that's remarkable about his life and that comes across in this book is that he seemed to sort of meet everybody and not just people like Henry James and Joseph Conrad and his sort of fellow writers but you know Lenin, Stalin, Teddy Roosevelt Churchill. And that kind of celebrity as both a novelist and a public intellectual seems kind of remarkable now. Was it unique at the time? Was there anybody else who was such a kind of big and sociable figure? I don't think his fellow writers had that sort of success. I mean, it's partly Beatrice Webb taking him up, introducing him to Balfour. He was very attractive to people. He was very charming. Ladies with large country houses are very pleased to have him staying there as a guest. He knew how to be a literary celebrity. He knew he knew how to appear as it were the sort of figure they, they wanted to see. Was he sort of easily swayed by, by powerful people, particularly ones like Roosevelt um, quoted the time machine at him, which must have been very gratifying? Yes, but he also, I mean, he wrote to Balfour asking for him to either to give him a chair or to give him... A, large amount of money. He, he was quite bold with these people. He would go to men's dining club that uh, Beatrice Webb set up and hold his own absolutely with people like Bertram Russell. And they, they all they all found him clever. 
and charming. Well, it falls outside the, the main narrative of your, of your book, you know, his, his meeting with Stalin. But I, I know that he got criticised for perhaps being rather sort of too gullible with Stalin. But when I read that interview, he was still pretty argumentative and pretty convinced that, that he was right and, and Stalin was wrong. And I kind of, you know, maybe, maybe it was not the perfect interview, but I was just quite impressed by his ability to tell even Stalin in the you know, 1930s, no, you've got this wrong. I think he wasn't awestruck by the great, and that's one of the things they liked about him, actually, that he was very sort of chirpy and, and ready to argue and hold his corner. I mean, he, he was a Republican and he never stopped sort of, even in 1946, he was still a Republican and saying it would be a good idea if the royal family disappeared. That, that I find admirable, I must say. So you describe his wife, Jane, as the true heroine of this story. And I suppose some people would think that she put up with far too much selfish behaviour. There were so many affairs and there was so much, obviously, his obsession with his sort of work and his sort of public profile. Why do you think that that marriage worked? Well, it worked because they had agreed. They had an agreement that he was, uh, they actually sort of formally agreed that he was going to be allowed to have lighthearted affairs and she would not object, and that the marriage would continue. And they both adored their two sons. I mean, Wells would, could not have faced losing his sons. And Jane decided that she would accept. And I think she was a remarkable woman. I feel sorry for her. I don't like what Wells did, but in a sense, they did make a successful agreement. They did not divorce. She entertained for him, and the, the children were were happy, were brought up happy. Just an incredible amount of tolerance uh, required. Well, I think tolerance is often required in marriages and it's more dramatically... (laughs) This is a more dramatic example than most. (laughs) It worked. It worked. He got into trouble for championing the cause of of sexual freedom, explicitly in some of his novels. Do you think that that was sincere in principle, or was it a sort of highfalutin excuse for doing what he wanted in his personal life and making it seem somehow noble and utopian? No, no, no. I think he was genuinely interested, very interested in questions of how marriages worked and how uh, infidelity worked. And as, as many novelists are, he thought it was all right to live like that. And he was perhaps more frank and open about it than many people are. And that's maybe one of the things that upset people. And another appetite he had uh, was for money. And one thing that sort of, sort of puzzled me is why he worried so much about it when he published so many uh, books, many of them very successful was he in real financial trouble at certain points? Or was it that lasting anxiety that some people who grow up without money have, that, they, that they're always about to run out? Well, he, he grew up with no money at all and, and had to keep his parents, which he generously did. The tale of him growing up, which I tell, is very much concerned with getting more money, a little bit more money, doing a bit better, being able to live in a better house, being able to build his own house, which is one of the remarkable things about Wells that he chose to get uh, Voise to build this really wonderful house on the coast. He was right to worry about money. He had to worry about money. And when he made it, you know, Hmm. he enjoyed it. You're candidly amazed by how much he wrote. And you say at one point he's averaging 7,000 words a day. 
Now, obviously, you know, Dickens was was no slouch either. So how much how does Wells's work rate compare to other writers you've you've examined? Was it was it sort of prodigious? Yes. Hard work, hard work all the time. That's quite true. Yes. And we don't know exactly. I mean, whether he doesn't seem to have had absolutely fixed times to work. Um, he, worked, he worked at night, he worked morning but he took a, he took a lot of time off too which is one of the attractive things about him he wasn't perhaps he didn't have a pattern of working every day from nine to five so he was always having this this interesting life going on he also seemed to have no sense of i suppose proportionate ambition that he seemed to think it quite normal to be committed to explaining the past and predicting the future of humanity in fiction and non-fiction well he had an amazing imagination that is one of the things that makes him a great writer to write the time machine and, and then also to write a great novel about his own society, Tono Bungay, which I think is a great novel. And then there's stuff like the anticipations and the outline of history where he's, he's going into nonfiction and they sold very well. He's just trying to kind of, just the sheer idea of going, I'm going to tell the history yes, of well, humanity. <laughs> yes, it's probably the first Wells I read was the history, yes. Um, to me, that's less interesting, but I mean, he did it very well. It shows that he could do almost anything he chose to set out to do. But no one, I think, is going to remember him for that. They remember him for stories, stories like the, the door in the wall. When we're discussing writers from the past, there's very much a sense of, sort of people who had views of their time. And, and you have to wrestle with those. And a lot of them didn't really change their minds. And so if there was a writer who was anti-Semitic, uh, for example, they sort of didn't then stop being anti-Semitic. With Wells, you've got this extraordinary thing with anticipations in 1901, where, where it ends with this kind of unbelievable sort of racism. <laughs> and, and yet within, a, within sort of a few years, he's sort of completely re- repudiated that, which seems very unusual. Was that under pressure or did he have, just have a capacity to realise when he'd gone astray? I think he saw he'd gone astray partly by going to America and really admiring people of different races in America and seeing that they were as interesting, as gifted, as clever, and that he'd just been wrong to think that they were inferior. That's that's a good thing. Well, yes, because it's sort of a lot of the time these very charming, uh, egotistical people they are they're not known for being able to recognise when they're they're wrong, and it's a kind of it's a quite sort of quietly impressive part of his personality. There's a great quote from Churchill, uh, who was a Wells reader, wrote to him in 1905 and said, "I'm always ready to eat your suet, and they've eaten all you have ever prepared, but I must have the jam too." And as you explained, the suet was the social commentary, the jam was the storytelling. Did Wells, as he got older, simply run out of jam, like run out of either the the interest or the ability to sort of entertain? I mean, I've written about the young Wells because I find that the interesting part of Wells. Why I didn't want to do the whole life is that I found the later Wells less, less interesting. So I think I really believe that the best of Wells's writing was what he did when he was young. And, um, you know, he became a world figure and he pronounced and he met great people and did interviews and he did good. I mean, he politically, he was absolutely admirable, I think, in um, wanting to promote international Mm. cooperation. 
but he stopped being uh, he stopped being a great writer. Do you have a sense, I suppose, of what of what happens there? Because some of the other people that you've written about, I mean, some obviously died relatively young, um, but there are other people who were producing really great work in their final year. And it seems quite unusual, I suppose, to like you said, to your, your, your focus is on a particular portion of his life. And I don't think anybody would disagree with you. So like, oh, well, we're not have disagreed with you. You know, that that's the interesting bit. And then something is, is lost. And I wonder what that is. I suppose he just felt that he hadn't got stories to tell anymore. If you can't write, if you, if you feel you, you can't write well anymore, it's a very good idea to give up. So I think it's, it's something I rather admire in Wells, that he watched himself and he watched what he was doing. And he thought, right, this is it. I'm not going to do this anymore. What in this sort of vast body of work that he produced would you suggest is kind of perhaps overlooked relative to those relative to those great uh, science fiction works? Well, I'm, I, the story I mentioned, The Door in the Wall, I think is a great story. That's a late story came just by itself. I think if you've got Tony Bungay, though, you're doing pretty well. The War of the Worlds is just absolutely magnificent, isn't it? In those stories, he takes you in with his imagination, with his power to write, he really carries you with him. Yeah, extremely rare. And, and, then, and then for the works that he produced in the span of about three or four years, to still be, to still be so famous and to still be inspiring new adaptations all the time. Yes, absolutely. He's allowed the decline. It's like the Orwell thing, what it is to have talents to squander. You know? When you are writing a book, like you said, you're, it's because you want to spend time with somebody. So when you finished that biography, are you sort of ready for a break or do they remain a presence in your life? Did you sort of miss them? Well, they all remain presences in your life, yes. They're like your, your friends forever, and then you go back to them. And, of course, sometimes they're made into proposing to make a film of one of my books, and I'm very thrilled at the idea of that happening because Mrs Jordan, the actress, I'm going to sort of uh, be enlarged and uh, brought before more people is, is very good. Of course, Wells doesn't need <laughs> doesn't need me at all. Wells is never forgotten. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Claire Tomlin. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. The Young H.G. Wells is published by Viking. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed our conversation, please help spread the word by telling a friend or giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. Take care and see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Doreen Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.